1: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and I'm very glad, as always, to have everybody with us for the show today. Um, We're going to take up a very sobering and difficult subject on the show uh, today. We're going to talk about gun violence in a very specific way. Uh, According to uh, data from the Gun Violence Archive, there have been a total of 130 mass shootings In 2023 alone, Um, they define, well, actually, Congress defines a mass shooting as an incident in which a gun is used to kill four or more people, usually in the same location or in an adjacent location. So that's a congressional uh, definition of the term. And while there have been that many total mass shootings, we have now had, according again, to the Gun Violence Archive, 16 shootings in grades K through 12 um, this year. So we're going to look at gun violence among young people, because as horrifying as anyone who's killed by a gun is, it is particularly, particularly troubling when we see our own children, the most vulnerable among us, being vulnerable to the possibility of being killed by a gun. So to do that, we've assembled a terrific panel of people who've all been involved in this issue. I'm going to start with my Thursday partner on Political Rewind, the editor-at-large of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Kevin Riley. Kevin, as always, I'm glad you're here.
2: Glad to be here, Bill. And you're right, it's a tough topic. I have a daughter who is a preschool teacher. And when I talk to her, I'm always really surprised at the kinds of things she has to do uh, in terms of safety for her students and the drills and practices that they have to have even at that young age.
1: And we will be talking about that a little bit later in the show. We're also joined by Representative Michelle Au, a Democrat of Johns Creek. Excuse me, Michelle, we're particularly glad to have you here because in this Uh, recently ended session of the Georgia General Assembly, you uh, hope to be able to pass a number of uh, of, uh, pieces of legislation relating to gun violence. The one that I think we'll end up talking about most uh, today is a gun safety bill, which would have required locking up weapons to keep them out of the hands of children. So, Michelle, thanks for being here.
3: Thank you so much for having me again, Bill, and thank you for devoting a full hour to this conversation um, in an environment that often is, frankly, hostile to talking about gun safety as the type of issue it is, which is, frankly, it is a public health issue. So I hope that as we continue this conversation, we can frame it in that way.
1: Um, we're also joined by Dr. Mark Rosenberg, who has been one of the leaders in public health uh, looking at gun violence and what can be done to Turn things around. Uh, Since back in the 1980s and 90s, when he was at the Centers for Disease Control, he has continued his work in that field. And Mark, one of the things I know we're going to want to talk about with you is how committed you are to the notion that data and scientific study of gun violence can lead us to some solutions. Mark?
4: Thanks, Bill. I also appreciate your devoting this time. I guess if there's any single message I'd give, it's that we want to avoid fatalism. We can get out of this. It's a horrendous crisis right now, but we don't have to be stuck here. And yes, I do think that science can lead the way to solutions that are acceptable to all parties. We don't have to stay stuck.
1: Um, I say for last, Maureen Downey, who is the veteran education columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And Maureen, the reason I saved you for last is it was a column that you wrote in early April responding to the most recent uh, uh, gun-violent episode, the shootings at the Nashville Christian School, that really prompted me to want to do this show because you uh, gave us some really important data in that column, and uh, you talked about your frustration that you don't sense anything is being done here in Georgia to stem the potential problems we could face. So thanks for being here. And why don't you start us off by just telling us a little bit about the highlights of what you wrote in that particular piece. What I
0: wrote in that piece was that um, the Covenant School shooting in Nashville uh, preceded a few days by the East High School shooting in Denver uh, were the 14th school, uh, added up to 14 school shootings this year alone uh, in schools that uh, injury, uh, shootings that resulted in injuries were deaths. And on a, at a greater scale, I, I want to note that I've been writing about schools and kids uh, since Columbine, and I thought Columbine would bring change. It did not. I thought Sandy Hook would bring change, and it did not. Uh, Parkland uh, did not. And I have, um, I'm anxious for Mark to share, you know, a path forward because in the beginning when I was writing about this, I thought for sure when you saw that it was easy access to guns, it was easy access to powerful guns that were raising the death tolls at these schools, as we saw in Texas, uh, with 19 uh, uh, deaths there, children killed by by a a assault rifle. (laughs) I thought for sure we would would try to ban them. And, And I'm almost Given up a little bit on that. And now I am agreeing with the representative that we should try to at least impose gun safety because every time this happens, uh, 80 to 90% of the guns used in school shootings come from the home. And there's always a baffled parent or grandparent or uncle or aunt who says, I never thought that Johnny would take, you know, steal the guns and do this. I never realized how mentally ill my child was. And so, I don't think we can count on parents because parents don't see these dangers. And the best example, of course, is that recently horrific case in Virginia where a six year old who was so uh, had so many behavior and mental health issues that his parents were being required to come to school with him on most days. Well, one day they didn't come and he brought his mother's. A uh, handgun with him and shot his teacher in front of his classmates. So that's where we are today. And frankly, I am quite pessimistic. And I would love to see some optimism from my fellow panelists.
1: Um, thank you for that. Um, Kevin. Uh, uh Maureen points out in her column that since 2018, there have been 157 school shootings where at least one person was killed or injured. But there's a quote in that column that I think is particularly uh, important for us to look at. In response to the Nashville Christian school shooting, a Tennessee uh, Congressman um, Tim Burchett uh, said that the situation was hopeless. He said, gun violence cannot be stopped. Quote, it's horrible. It's a horrible, horrible situation, and we're not going to fix it. Criminals are going to be criminals. Kevin, uh, the opposite of what Maureen is hoping for, somebody you can tell us on the show today, yes, there are potential solutions.
2: Well, yeah, and and that's why I'm so anxious to hear from uh, Representative Au and and also um, from Mark Rosenberg, because I think they're both urging uh, us toward um, thoughtful, meaningful solutions that can be agreed upon if we're objective and wise about what to do. Because to me, it, it just seems crazy. And I'll just share this quick anecdote. This is one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had. And I've been lucky not to be exposed to much, much gun violence. I happened to be on a family trip in Ireland on the day of the 2012 Colorado theater shooting. And just as an experience, I happened to be in the newsroom of the Irish Times. It was something I sort of set up. And I couldn't believe what a huge story it was in Ireland that day. I didn't, I just didn't think, you know, there would be that much interest. And so I asked the editor of the paper and some of the people who worked there, why are you guys covering this? It's such detail. And their explanation came down to this. They lived in a country where guns were everywhere during the troubles and many people died. And there was a major effort in Ireland to get, just get rid of guns once that peace agreement was reached, because they believed if you could get the guns out of there, it's much less likely that people would use them, of course, right? And they just could not figure out, and were scratching their heads about why we Americans behave this way after their experience as a model. So to me, it's the time has come for just reasonable understanding of what to do here. Michelle?
3: I think you're absolutely right in terms of looking at gun violence as a fixable problem. Right. I just wanted to go back to that CDC statistic that we cited up top of the show to say that gun violence is now the number one cause of death in children and teenagers in this country. And that is a statistic that truly deserves not just notice, but action. Right. And I, I can't help but to think that if it were any other new top cause of death in children and teens in this country that we would be raring to act on it, right? Similar to when uh, motor vehicle accidents were a very high cause of injury and fatality in this country, Mm -hmm. this country did enact a a series of legislation and uh, moves in the auto industry to make the process of driving safer, right? And I want to note that in that process, the answer was not to ban all cars, right? That wasn't the solution. The solution was to make the act of driving a car safer. Right? There is no one single solution to any public health problem. There is not gonna be any one single solution to gun violence as a problem in this country. But as with cars, we have seatbelt laws and traffic signals and DUI laws and airbags and driver's licenses, all these things that layer on top of each other that address different parts of the problem that make overall the experience of being able to own and operate a car safer in public spaces. That's how I approach the problem and the you know the vexing problem of gun safety in this country. And I think the way that this helps is that it tries to take it out of the political space, which is where we see the most friction when it comes to uh, gun rights, and puts it into what is uh, more appropriate, which is the public health space, just Mm -hmm. as we've approached a lot of other problems that cause injury and death.
1: Well, Mark Rosenberg, I think uh, Representative Al just spoke to your sweet spot uh, in a number of ways. Number one, for years, as I said when I introduced you, you have argued that more studying of gun incidents and collecting more data about what happens in gun incidents can lead us to some solutions. And and Michelle is absolutely correct when she says it was only when the federal government began studying automobile accidents from a scientific point of view that we began seeing safety regulations like seatbelts, like airbags uh, put into vehicles to reduce deaths. So let's put this in your hands in terms of your concerns about what it means to study guns in a more scientific way.
4: Well, thanks, Bill. And let me say, I think we as a state are so lucky to have Michelle in the house. She's thoughtful, articulate, clear, and balanced in what she does. And she listens. I think, though, the problem is we are stuck it's like a bad divorce where the two sides are so conflicted that they think the problem is the other person. And what drives them is to get the other person to do something that will really hurt them and harm them. And meanwhile, the kids are being harmed. They can both agree that they really care about the kids, but they're so stuck in this angry, highly conflicted situation They don't stop to think rationally. And I think that's where we are. I think there are some people, people who advocate gun rights, and it's a constitutional right as currently interpreted in this country. The people who argue for gun rights think that the other side sees the answer as getting rid of guns and all guns. And if they don't hold firm, all of the law-abiding gun owners will lose their guns. The other side sees it as uh, problem. And the gun rights people want to see it as a problem of bad people. The other side says it is a problem of the gun. In truth, it's a neither. It's not black or white. The problem is guns in the hands of people who shouldn't have them. We have hundreds of millions of guns in this country. People talk about the horrible gun culture now. Those incidents that lead the news, the really horrific incidents, don't reflect the majority of gun owners. So our challenge is how to find the people who shouldn't have guns while protecting the rights of law-abiding gun owners. And this is where science can be helpful. If you tell people to lock up their guns in their house when they have kids in the house, that's not gonna infringe on the rights of law-abiding gun owners. Universal background checks, are designed to keep guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them. Same for red flags or waiting periods or domestic violence laws. Science can help us show that those work to satisfy both parties, and they can discover new ways as well. So, yes, I think we can get out of this high conflict
1: area. I I do want to come back at, at one point to the notion of what you think, what it means when you say scientific study can help deal with gun violence. But before we do, Maureen, um, Mark Rosenberg and I have talked about this before and he's expressed the point of view he just did with me. And and what I've said back is it sounds in a way as if Mark is saying what a lot of the NRA crowd says, which is guns aren't the problem, people are the problem. and And I know that's troubling to some of those who really want to see Uh, uh, strict regulations put in place to control weapons.
0: You know, I think what we have to keep in mind is is that um, we we can argue about guns guns, uh, cause crimes, people commit crimes. Of course, when they're armed with a gun, those crimes are far more deadly. You know, I I do think, having watched the General Assembly deal with this issue poorly for uh, more than three decades now, that it has become very politicized, and there was simply a knee-jerk reaction, no gun laws, because we'll lose the people that vote for us. And I think that's the challenge to overcome. I sat in House Judiciary about 15 years ago, 18 people testified on a gun bill that would have required safety locks, would required more parental responsibility. Uh, of the 18, uh, 17 were for it. I don't know if you testified there, Mark, but there were experts in the country. There were people who had lost their children, who had been playing at a friend's house, who were killed by a playmate a playmates on the gun. Okay. Of those 18 people, only one person was opposed. The uh, committee barely discussed it and immediately voted it down. And I, I was stunned to see that happen. And I have just seen that repeatedly again and again. Uh, I don't know how to get the message because the people voting it down or refusing to talk about it, uh, Michelle's counterparts in the, in the General Assembly, they have kids. They have grandkids. They send kids to public schools where they're being drilled now as young as kindergarten about, hey, you come and learn to tie your shoes and you learn to hide from an armed gunman. And yet they don't want to do anything about it.
2: Maureen's reference to watching the General Assembly all these years brings to mind something, Michelle, I've always wanted to ask, which is, so we, in Georgia, we have now a law that permits uh, carrying a gun almost anywhere without a permit, right? But you cannot bring a gun into the state capitol. How do your colleagues who support, you know, uh, or or who resist um, some of the things you've suggested and legislation you've 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 written, how do they explain that?
3: I think you're right that there is a degree of conflict and hypocrisy in how people approach gun safety when it comes to themselves and their families versus in the abstract And I think that comes down to the way we frame it as a political issue, right? Back to what Maureen was saying, um, there has been quite a lot of, I'll I'll judiciously call it hesitancy, from the part of our Republican colleagues who even as they recognize and send thoughts and prayers every time there is another mass shooting um, or episode of gun violence in this country, that they are loathed to address it in any sort of concrete way because they fear that it will alienate them from their voters.
1: Um, yeah, so sorry. so let me bring it. I want to make sure we focus um, on, on the issue of, of children and guns uh, sure. as much as possible. So, um, Michelle, let me talk about um, the the bill that I mentioned near the start of the show, um, HB 161. You called it the Pediatric Health Safe Storage Act. It would require owners to securely store their firearms that my, minors might be able to to access there. It's a misdemeanor in your bill, punishable by up to $5,000. And I'd love for you to speak to the hearing you held on that. And then I want you to come in, Mark, because like Mike Michelle, I have, you know, I have enormous respect for your views on uh, guns that obviously she did too, or she wouldn't have asked you to testify in that hearing. So Michelle, first, tell us more about the hearing and how it was received.
3: Right. So HB 161 is the third of three gun safety bills I introduced this year. The reason it was the last of the three bills to introduce is because I was holding on to it in hopes that I actually could get a Republican co-sponsor onto the bill. Right. Because I I think we can recognize that that is the best way to move forward a bill in a Republican majority General Assembly. And also, I felt that the issue was um, close enough to people and sympathetic enough that we may be able to break through some of these partisan divides. I was unable ultimately to do that because of this like entrenchment when it comes to uh, gun culture in this state. However, um, it was directly in it was introduced directly in response to this new statistic of it being the number one cause of death in children and teens. That we have to respond to this. We have to to move towards action. Um, The fact that it got a hearing is really um, heartening in that it does show some degree of progress in the state and our ability to even talk about this issue. I will be completely frank when I say that um, gun safety legislation in the Georgia General Assembly historically has not even gotten a hearing. And just so people understand, a hearing is literally the very first step in the process. Right, A bill gets assigned to a committee. It gets heard. And then ultimately, you know, one hopes it would get voted out of committee, get voted on the floor, cross over to the other chamber and hopefully ultimately get to the governor's desk. Most gun safety legislation doesn't even get to the first step because uh, even giving gun safety legislation that legitimacy and that oxygen is anathema to uh, many of the very pro-gun rights uh, folks. In the General Assembly, so so that was very heartening to be able to have that conversation, um and I I don't credit it to the fact that I'm charming or any any strength of mine, but the fact that the community really came together to push this issue right, and basically what we aim to do in talking about this issue, in shining a light on the data and the facts, and frankly the personal nature of it to many people in our community, is that it creates an environment that is so uncomfortable for legislators to. Con- continue to ignore this issue and continue to try to um, stifle gun safety legislation in darkness, right? So I am very heartened that we're able to move this bill forward and hope we can continue to do more next year as we continue with this two-year session.
1: So, Mark, what did you tell the committee when you testified?
4: I told the committee that Michelle's bill has strong evidence behind it that safe storage saves lives. There is no question about it. But what I thought was the most telling was a person who testified just before me talking for the gun owners of Georgia. And he said that if any of the people on this committee voted for the bill, he and all his 10,000 members would make sure that they lost their job. This is the atmosphere of threats in which these cases are decided. And he said very clearly, and if you're a Republican, we'll come after you twice as strongly and make sure you lose your job. This person who testified had heard really compelling stories about people who had lost their children, the guns. But he said, if I have to lock up my gun, it's going to take me five extra seconds to get at it if an intruder comes. And it may take 15 extra seconds before I can go and confront him with a gun. I think what's behind that? How do you balance five seconds versus the life of your kid? I think people have a very hard time thinking about prevention. And to me, it's like cancer. It's very hard to give people To get people to give money for cancer prevention until they get it. And once they get a diagnosis of cancer, I think they would give anything they had to be free of it. If they could just go back in time, they'd give everything they had to be free of it. I think we have a very hard time thinking about the death of our children. How do you possibly balance the loss of a child versus the loss of five seconds. It's not rational. We're, we're doing our decisions based on fear. And hopefully, we can provide the kind of information to legislators that will let them see they're not going to lose all their guns. We're not going to impinge on their rights to bear guns and own guns. We're talking about things that both satisfy gun safety and gun rights. They don't impinge these laws that Michelle and her colleagues introduced, take that middle path right down the middle, and they say, it's not guns, it's not bad people, it's guns in the hands of the wrong people, and that's what we're going to target. That's our way out.
2: Kevin? You know, at the beginning of the, uh, our conversation, Michelle, you made a reference to uh, you know car safety, and if I'm not mistaken, Mark, you worked on on that, too, or at least familiar with it. I mean, what was the reaction then to what now is just very common? I mean, everyone wears a seatbelt, right? Every, every child in a car is required to be restrained in the appropriate kind of uh, child seat. But can you take us back to that moment? And what was the argument against that? And mm-hmm. how did you overcome it?
4: I think, let me give a quick answer, then Michelle. I turn to Michelle people said safety doesn't sell. And if you increase cars by the cost of a seatbelt, no one's gonna buy them. Today, the number one criteria for new car sales is their safety features. Safety does sell, but it took time to convince them. And the most compelling part here is that cars were made much, much safer 600,000 lives have been saved on the road without banning cars. There are more cars sold today, more cars on the road than ever.
1: So, Maureen, you know, what Mark's argument is um, really meaningful here, suggesting that The answer to this problem, to some extent, is saying to gun rights people, we don't want to take away your guns. We just want to make them make it sit. Now, the fact of the matter is there are some guns that the uh, that the folks who are about it believe in gun control, gun safety, do want to take away assault weapons. But in many cases, it's as Michelle was saying, let's just lock up your gun. Let's make it a requirement. But Maureen. What Mark described as having happened in that committee hearing, where uh, a lobbyist for for the gun industry stood up and said, we'll take away every one of your seats if you vote for this legislation, um, is exactly what the problem is. The NRA and others would say it's all a slippery slope. The minute you do something like require a gun uh, be locked up, the next step will be you require that you're not allowed to carry the gun outside the home. The next step would be this and that. And that's always been the argument on the pro-gun side of this.
0: Which is why I feel at this point we're at a stalemate. And frankly, if I had to uh, you know, give a solution, I would say elect more women to the legislature, because I think women, Republican or Democrat, are much more aware of child risks. I want to give you two quick anecdotes. I got an email. I always get new people moving to Atlanta saying, where should I send my kid to school? They like the arts. They want to play soccer. They're good at math. This is the first time I ever got an email that said, which are the safest schools? Which have the best security? Which are the hardest to get into? And it's almost like we were discussing a military base and not an elementary school for a a kid. The second anecdote onto the point about uh, uh, guns in the legislature when the, when I when David Scott, who used to be a rep, and I used to write about him every year because he every year tried this and finally <laughs> gave up, frankly. And then of course now he we went Then he went to the, the US Congress, but um, once when he was trying very hard to get a very basic child safety bill passed involving guns, Aurora legislature stood up and said, look, if I'm not home and there's a car coming down my driveway, I want my 12 year old to be able to access our guns as quickly as I could. And I thought, That's the issue there and I thought about his comment this week where we had these innocent kids killed for the mistake of ringing the wrong doorbell and going down the wrong driveway and now rolling your basketball in the neighbor's house and honestly I, I hate to be negative about this, but I think we have to change the General Assembly to change our gun laws in Georgia.
1: Uh, I got to get to a break, but but I've got to say, Maureen, the fact that uh, David Scott, that, you know, that anecdote about getting to my gun if somebody's coming down the driveway all those years ago, is chilling, given the three incidents that we've seen in the past week, uh, because of just that sort of thing. Innocent young people Going in the wrong, going down the wrong drive, knocking on the wrong door. Uh, I gotta get to a break. We got a lot more to talk about with this panel. uh, When we come back, Uh, you're listening to Political Rewind.
2: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
1: Welcome back to Political Rewind. Today, we're talking about gun violence, particularly gun violence focused on children, uh, both um, individual murders of young people, uh, school shootings, mass shootings, which have taken so many lives, but also suicide. A significant percentage of the young people who die by gun are committing suicide, which is just terribly heartbreaking in and of itself. Our panel includes Kevin Riley, Representative Michelle Au, Dr. Mark Rosenberg and Maureen Downey, uh, the education columnist at the AJC. By the way, Maureen, I hope as many people are reading your column as I do, because whether you're talking about guns among young people or in young what they do to young people or not, your column is always so smart about issues in education, which is why I'm always glad we can have you on Political Rewind. Um, let's, let's move on, on on this whole issue of where we head next. Mark Rosenberg, you let, let's make sure we explain what we haven't really talked about yet, which is how how data study might be ha- have an influence on what we do with guns. I will cite to you an example that I recall from years ago, um, years and years ago, and I don't know which agency studied this. It was proved definitively that having a gun in your home made you more vulnerable to being shot by a gun that it was dangerous not protective to have a gun in your house that's a pretty clear example of research that um helps us understand the situation it didn't change anything
4: it's a really good point to the research bill and that has been shown over and over again that if you have a gun in your home, not only does it not keep your family safe, but it puts them at very, very high risk. If you have a gun in your home, the risk that someone in your home will be shot and killed with a gun goes up not by 10, 20, 30, 40 percent. It goes up by 200 percent. It's triple. It triples the risk. And if you have a gun in your home, the risk that someone in your Home will commit suicide by gun goes up five-fold. Bringing a gun into your home doesn't make you safer. It puts you at increased risk. So again, what can you do to keep guns out of the hands of people who are suicidal? There are things you can do. You can have your weapons locked and loaded. At Michelle's hearing, there was powerful testimony from one person his wife had been killed in the shooting of seven Asian women in Atlanta. And then he had a family gathering and he told a story about how his son was at the gathering and ran and grabbed a shotgun, went out on the terrace, put the gun in his mouth and killed himself. And this person said, you know, I'm a gun owner. I believe in guns. But if my gun had been locked up, my son would be here today. So if we can identify the people at risk, at risk of suicide, for example, and keep their guns away from them, we don't harm anyone else. We don't infringe on the rights of other people, but we can save lives. This is, in fact, what red flag laws do.
1: Uh, Michelle, I, I also think red flag laws, one answer to that, but I also think I recall Mark Rosenberg writing at one point that um, if you delay the time that a young person can get her or his hands on a gun, the chances that they'll commit suicide go down dramatically because research shows that kids whose initial impulse may be to kill themselves, maybe won't feel that way three days later, four days later.
3: That's absolutely correct. And it goes back to this point that when we draft Bills and when we try to pass laws, we have to legislate based not on conjecture, but on fact, right? And that's what the data provides for us is a set of set facts that we can study to see how we can improve on a problem. One of the basic tenets of scientific study is that in order to fix a problem, you first have to be able to measure it, right? And that's what we look at when we look at gun safety data in this country. I'm gonna note that there was a significant period of time in this country where there was actually an embargo on funding for gun safety research I think specifically because looking at the data makes it quite stark that gun safety legislation has an effect right so to continue to ignore the effect of passing gun safety legislation is uh, counterproductive I think we also have to look at the fact that the United States is really an outlier in the national community when it comes to our rates of gun violence, and in particular, our rates of children and teens being victims of gun violence, there is no other developed, wealthy country uh, on this planet Earth that has as high rates of gun violence as the United States does, and that relates to the laxity of our gun laws and our refusal to look at the data and respond to the facts that are right in front of us.
2: Kevin Riley. So, Bill, I have a, I have a quick, I guess, story from my youth. I, I. Um... I grew up in a house that always had a gun in it. And that was because, as we've talked about on the show, my father was a police officer. And his habit was to come home, walk up to his bedroom and lock his gun, come back downstairs and kiss my mother hello. That's how serious he was about gun safety. And I can remember as a young kid, him showing us his gun, explaining how it worked, explaining where it was locked up, explaining to us that, if we ever were around a gun or saw a gun, we should immediately find an adult and tell them, you know, I can remember him taking us to the police firing range where they practiced to qualify with, and how scary it was with all the, how loud it was. But I believe it was all an effort from a person who on the front lines of American life understood as most law enforcement people will tell you, certainly Uh, publicly and sometimes privately, there are way too many guns around. Cops are terrified when they pull someone over that there's a gun in the car. And we've had endless stories in the newspaper about how so many guns are stolen out of cars. It was part of the crime wave in Buckhead. So I think people at the front lines understand the common sense of gun safety and how crucial it is and these very simple things I mean, my my father had six children, you know, and I'm sure he thought, you know, I wasn't the best behaved kid. He didn't need me getting too interested in a gun. He taught me, you know, and and satisfied my curiosity. And I think about that now. And what an important thing that must have been for him to do.
1: Maureen, in the column that you uh, wrote that I referred to early this uh, that you wrote early this month that I referred to, um, you, you pointed out the way in which uh, the legislature and the governor have decided to address their concerns about gun violence. And you really briefly referenced it earlier in the show. It's the sort of militarization of our public schools. Talk about that a little.
0: Well, I think that what our General Assembly and governor uh, seem to be saying is that guns are a part of American life. And rather than trying to uh, limit access to guns, we need to protect schools from being infiltrated by guns, from people getting in. And so there, we have bills requiring more drilling. We have money for uh, school resource officers, even though almost all the prominent school shootings where people were killed occurred at schools that had school resource officers. Uh, We have to keep in mind that in the Texas uh, shooting, uh, I think that the, uh, the shooter there, 100 rounds, in two and a half minutes. So when you are coming in with a rapid fire weapon of any kind, the uh, the fatalities, the shootings will be quick. So even with a school resource officer. So our General Assembly seems to be saying we uh, guns are part of Georgia. Uh, They are in many, many homes, and we don't want to uh, interfere with that. So let let us instead put the onus on schools. And it's, it's an impossible thing to do because all of us have had kids in schools. You're there for field day. They prop open the door so the kids can get in and use the restrooms or get a cup of water. It is very hard to treat a school like a prison. And that is essentially our General Assembly's response to the gun threat to children in Georgia.
1: Um, Mark, how do you respond to that? And, and how do you change that equation?
4: I think that we need to let people know that in working for gun safety, we are not going to take away everyone's guns. We're not gonna do that. And there are ways that we can make our children safer in school without taking away everyone's guns. This is where the research comes in. That can be demonstrated, that can be shown. This is the kind of evidence that Michelle has behind every one of the bills that she introduced there. I'm gonna mention one other thing about children, and that is that a while back, several years ago, people talked about the deaths of despair, that older white men were dying now, deaths of despair from drug overdose and from gun violence. And that was a horrible thing because we were actually decreasing the life expectancy of people in this country. Now, we're decreasing the life expectancy of children. For the first time ever, we've turned that around and our children have a diminished life expectancy because of guns.
1: Well, that's an that's an awful uh, realization uh, to lead us into a break, but I gotta take it. Michelle Au, I know you wanna respond to that and we'll get to you and the rest of the panel in just a moment. Michelle, I I really uh, should not ever neglect to point out when I introduce you that you're a physician, you're an anesthesiologist. And one of the reasons I mention it now is I've just finished watching what I thought was an extraordinary documentary series on Netflix called Emergency NYC, where they really the cameras take us inside emergency rooms at three metropolitan New York hospitals and show us cases in great detail. And one of the cases is a teenage boy who has been badly shot up and may die, um, and we don't know whether he's going to survive or not. I wondered, as I thought about your being on the show today, to what extent you as an anesthesiologist see the devastating effect that gunshots have on anyone but young people particularly?
3: So I work at a hospital that is not a level one trauma center. I think that Atlanta at this point, quite famously, uh, only has one level one trauma center left, uh, which is a discussion I think for another time. But just because I don't directly receive trauma patients do- doesn't mean that I don't see the effects of gun violence, because many patients that I end up taking care of are past victims of gun violence, that I see scars, I see injuries, I see uh, resultant paralysis, all sorts of uh, organ damage resulting from, from either accidental or deliberate episodes of gun violence that have lasting effects, not just on them physically, but psychologically, right? So I don't think that's anything that anyone who works in medicine can avoid. And it really brings home the the devastating effects, even if the patient doesn't die as a result of gun violence, not just the effects on the patients and the families themselves, but the cost to the healthcare system of gun violence.
1: So let me keep the ball with you for another moment. Um, Your gun safety bill, Uh, uh, failed. You've got several other measures. Uh, uh, You want to have background checks on private gun sales and transfers of weapons, a three-day cooling off period for purchases, um, holding firearm owners responsible if someone uses their gun during a crime, whatever. You're in the first year, you've just finished the first year of a biennial. You actually got that hearing on the gun safety bill does that make you in any way optimistic that this during this off period of time leading to the next session, you, in fact, can win more of your colleagues over to your point of view?
3: Working on advancing our gun safety legislation is my primary focus in the off season. Right. People are aware that in Georgia, we have a part time legislature. So usually we're at the Capitol for about the first three months of the year. However, we continue to serve the rest of the time, right? Even when we're not at the capital passing laws, there is a significant legislative portfolio that I'm working to advance. So one of the things that I would like to work on in the off session is to get HB 161, the Pediatric Health Safe Storage Act, recommitted to the public health committee where it belongs. Right. I think that uh, what has been clear is that we are very um, grateful to the public safety committee for having heard this bill. However, all the testimony we heard virtually had to do with this issue of gun safety being a public health issue, right? A lot of the people who came to testify were medical professionals, public health professionals, mental health professionals. And it seems like the Public Health Committee is more equipped to deal with the data-driven evidence that is behind gun safety legislation. So that is what we would like to continue to work on in the off session. And more broadly speaking, continuing to uh, communicate that all of this legislation is to create a culture of gun safety and an expectation of gun safety, right? None of this is about restricting people from having, buying guns. But uh, much like Kevin's dad showed that uh, responsible gun ownership should become the norm. And this is what we're working towards.
1: Uh, Mark Rosenberg, uh, we've told this story on the air before for listeners who are with us uh, most of the time about the fact that you were uh, one of the founders of and the first director of CDC's Injury and Prevention Control Uh, And in that capacity, you started doing research that you think is so essential to figuring out gun violence. Uh, Subsequent to your losing that position, the government cut off funds for research into guns. But in the last couple of years, Congress has restored some money to CDC to do just what you would hope they would do. But it's not much money. The question is, do you think they're going to have the resources to move toward your goal?
4: I think that there are resources, our government certainly has these resources on motor vehicle safety. We spend $200 million a year, every year for 50 years on this problem that now exceeds motor vehicle deaths. We spend a pittance, it's not a funding stream, it's a funding piddle. And we spend like a total of $25 million a year from the government. Yes, there are resources. Yes, they would be well spent. They'd be responsible. And they would help generate solutions acceptable to both sides.
1: Maureen, um, I think you probably expressed the most pessimism of anybody on the panel about any progress legislatively. Uh, do you have any hope?
0: I will tell you where I have a little hope. I was around in in Atlanta uh, in 1999 when um, a very pleasant 15-year-old boy who was a Boy Scout went to church, Uh, family didn't know he was depressed at all, uh, shot six classmates at Heritage High School. And the interesting thing is that the AJC, we went to that school board meeting a couple weeks later, and 40 parents showed up at that school board Mm -hmm. meeting. And really, they were sort of They were kind of asking for more security, but there was a sense in that community, this was an aberration, even though it was a month after Columbine, but that guns were simply here to stay and there was nothing to do about it, and this would go away. And I don't think you would find many parents, even in Georgia right now, who would believe that uh, a school shooting is an isolated incident and not a threat to their children. I really believe that we have to get those parents, and I think they exist in every town in Georgia, uh, urban rural middle of nowhere, middle of everything. and those parents have to speak out. I think that they don't believe we can make any difference because they see that our governor, the famous ad where he's actually pointing a shotgun at a at a teenage boy. I mean it was supposed to be kind of whimsical rather than absolutely terrifying that that's how we get elected in this state with our uh, you know gun bravado. but I do hope parents parents have to mobilize
1: Kevin Riley um. Uh, the Kaiser Health News released a uh, survey uh, pretty recently about guns. and it, it, one of the findings that they had made me realize how you know fortunate I feel and maybe you do too, since we both have children who are grown adults. One in four of the parents that they talk to who have children under 18 years old say they worry every day about gun, Violence in their children's schools or on the street, Kevin. That it's if we're living in a country where that fear is rampant, it really says something very, very uh, depressing about us.
2: Uh, I think you're right, Bill, and and really we're not freed up just because our children are adults. Because if they're teachers or in in public places, they're also vulnerable. Mark mentioned that when we act out of fear. We, we make poor we make poor decisions. Um, I'm optimistic, though, because the only thing Americans love more than their guns are their cars. And if we were able to accomplish uh, what we've accomplished with cars, I've got to believe that at some point, maybe a clever manu- gun manufacturer will come up with a whole way of marketing that emphasizes a gun safety with their product and they dominate the market. Maybe the American market will be the solution.
1: Um, we really are just about a time out of time. But let me give each of you, Mark and Michelle, one one, you know, maybe 15 seconds to make a concluding comment. Mark and then Michelle. I think there is hope. I think
4: guns are here to stay, but that doesn't mean that the damage they inflict is here to stay. Cars are here to stay, but we've saved hundreds and hundreds of thousands of lives by making them safer. I also think we just need to mention the disparities. The people who pay the cost are increasingly people of color.
1: Thank you for pointing that out. It's a subject we should get into in more depth on another show. Michelle, a final comment from you as we end the show.
3: Sure. I think uh, just in response to Kevin, I think there is something hopefully that Americans love more than their guns and their cars, and that is their children. So in, in loving their children, I hope that we can move towards common sense gun safety legislation.
1: Uh, Representative Michelle Au, uh, Dr. Mark Rosenberg, uh, AJC columnist Maureen Downey, and Kevin Riley, I really appreciate this conversation on the show today. It's a subject that we will take up again because it's one that no one should stop thinking about from my point of view, and I think the panel certainly agrees. We're completely out of time for today's show I'm grateful to all of you who were with us. We'll be back with another brand new show soon. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care, stay healthy, and be good to one another. Bye, everybody.